emphasis really in the legacy of of slavery. And the more that we understand that legacy, I think the more that we're able to understand the unique struggles of Black women. Hey, all things listeners, whether you're listening on your favorite podcast app or on YouTube, please be sure to like and subscribe and maybe even leave a comment or review. Thanks so much. Thanks everybody for tuning into this episode of All Things. It's the first All Things of February, which is Black History Month. And so I have invited my colleague and friend Jasmine Holmes on today's episode. And I'm thrilled to be bringing you Jasmine's voice because Jasmine is somebody I've been following for years, um, her writing and her Instagram account. And if you know her at all, you know that she loves history, Black history in particular, and that she's really gifted at looking at culture, sociology, history, theology, and then sort of bringing everything together and analyzing it and presenting that to us on the other side of the screen, whether it's through Instagram or the other side of the page, if we're reading her books, um, in a way that's just accessible and really helpful. So I knew I wanted to kick this month off with Jasmine so that we could really focus our attention on Black history and um, just get us going. So Jasmine, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Jasmine, start by just telling people a little bit of your background, who you are, what you're writing, what your life is like. Yeah, so I have um, a teaching background. I taught for um, just under a decade and um, straight out of college, I was an English major and my goal was to write the next great American novel, which I have yet to accomplish. (laughs) Um, But I ended up um, studying English in school and then my very first year teaching, they're like, we need an English and a history teacher. And um, I was teaching in a classical school. So I've taught ancient history. I've taught medieval history. I've taught early modern history. I've taught modern history. um, And just was always, always teaching history as part of my job. And eventually towards the end of my teaching, I just wasn't even teaching English anymore because I had just fallen so in love with teaching history. Um, I have three sons. Um, Wayne is six. Langston is four. Jamie is almost, he's, he'll be 18 months pretty soon here. And then um, my husband and I live in Jackson, Mississippi, where now I write full time and um, mostly write about history. Um, I am releasing a Christian trade book in a couple weeks about shame and the gospel. Um, and then in September, I have another history book coming right out on its heels. Amazing. So good. So many books. And I'm going to link all those in the show notes so everybody can find those. Um, But one of your books is Mother to Son. So let's just start off by something that you touch on in Mother to Son. Beautiful book, such a helpful, moving work. Um, But in Mother to Son, you refer many times to the already, not yet. And I would love to start our conversation here because you frame this conversation, whether it's about Black history or racial reconciliation, the themes that you write about in Mother to Son, you frame it in an eternal context, in the story of God first, um, but then also our national story encompassed in that. So can you unpack for us what you mean when you refer to the already but not yet as it pertains to this conversation? Yeah, I think a lot of times when people talk about the history of racism in this country, when they use phrases like white supremacy, which I purposely did not use in Mother to Son, um, when they, you know, talk about um, just inequity, a lot of times the conversation shifts into, well, yeah, but we're all one race, the human race, and Christ has reconciled us all in him. And so why are we even talking about this right now? And 
Good point. True point, right? That's what gives us the strength to continue to advocate for dignity and advocate for personhood because of what Jesus has said about us, because of how we've been made right with him and because of the fact that we're made in his image. Um, But we're not in heaven yet. And so a lot of the times our world reflects the fact that we haven't quite agreed in action with what God says about us in principle. And so the work that we do is to try to bring those two things closer to one another, what God says about us and how we treat and value other people who are made in his image. Mm, That's really good. Okay. That actually leads really well into my next question for you. Um, You know, with that eternal framework in mind, the fact that we are one in Christ, the fact that the Lord is working in us and through us, and we are not yet in heaven, we are not yet um, fully restored. Why have a black history month? I know that's a huge question. But I imagine it's maybe going through the minds of some listeners or some people have looked at the title of this podcast episode. Why devote a month to Black history? Given our national history, Jasmine, why do we do this? It's such a big conversational topic that comes up this month and really every February um, from people who are like, why is it the shortest month of the year? To people who are like, why do we even have it in the first place? And so I think it's really cool to look at the history. So to look at the fact that um, Carter G. Woodson in the 1910s, 1920s was a historian who really worked overtime to bring Black history into Um, especially Black schools. So after the Civil War, public education starts to become mandatory. And the education that a lot of Black students are receiving is this white supremacist education that kind of glorifies the history of slavery, kind of glorifies these images of of Black people as inferior, as lesser than. And so people like Carter G. Woodson and Edward A. Johnson and Layla Amos Pendleton um, and Drusilla Hill, you know, all these people start to work together to try to bring curriculums into Black schools that uphold Black dignity and uphold mm-hmm. Black personhood. Um, and one of the major thrusts that Carter G. Woodson had during this period was Black history, Negro history week, as it was called. And so it was just a week to just really like, okay, let's bring this really hardcore into schools. Um, and it was taking place in a time where Black history wasn't being taught at all, not as part of American history and not separately. And so um, eventually that week became a month, but its roots are in this um, Black man and this Black educational community's efforts to really bring um, Black education into Black schools. And so it's kind of a focus, it's kind of an opportunity to just hardcore focus on some of the things that we maybe touch on through the year, um, but don't touch on as much as as maybe we ought to touch on them. Um, mm-hmm. I will say as a history teacher and as somebody who talks about Black history 24-7, um, I understand the kind of like, well, why, you know, I understand when people are like, well, why are we only talking about Black history in February? Isn't it just American history? Totally. Um, but in the spirit of Carter G. Woodson, it's kind of this opportunity to really focus in and really hone in and kind of repurpose, right? And recommit to putting this history, understanding that this history is American history and really um, doing deeper dives that we may not get to do um, during other times of the year that we should get to do Mm -hmm. and that we should work towards doing other times of the year as well. Yeah, that's helpful. I think so often, at least, you know, I hear in sort of more contrarian conversations, I don't know. Is there like an underlying threat? Maybe people feel threatened. Like we have this whole month for that. Well, why not this population? Well, why not that population? And what I hear you saying is that, you know, the origination of Black History Week and now Black History Month is that 
you know, no, we just want to celebrate. We want to have this opportunity to lean in a little bit more to really pull out mm-hmm. some things that we're not pulling out the rest of the year. So that's a helpful way Absolutely. of framing it. You know, we um, do have these other months as well. Uh, they don't get, they're not as widely known a lot of the time because they're not, Black History Month is old, right? It's 120 years old. Um, but we do have, you know, Asian Pacific Heritage Month. We have um, Hispanic Heritage Month. We ha- month we have, you know, we have a lot of these um, that maybe don't get as much traction because they're not as controversial as Black History Month, mm-hmm. um, but they exist. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I think it's a reflection of the fact that there are some gaps in our history. There are some gaps in our curriculum and what we normally are talking about and that a specific people has rightfully said, let's lean in a little harder for this month. And and I think that's good. I think we're all the richer for it. Um, Speaking of history, something that you often say on Instagram, especially I hear you say it frequently is read the footnotes or read (laughs) primary sources, right? These are two things, primary sources and footnotes that you are often saying, why does that matter? Why can't I just read my history textbook and move on with my life? Maybe they're lying to you. You know, okay. and I mean, like, it's honestly, that's the truth. Uh, so I, I'm home. I was homeschooled. I, I still say I'm homeschooled as if it's some kind of current identity because homeschoolers know <laughs> once homeschooled, always homeschooled. It is a personality trait. I talked to my parents on the phone this morning and we were laughing about something that happened at a homeschool conference 15 years ago. And we were laughing mm-hmm. at it like it happened yesterday. And we were like, ah, oh, those were some days. <laughs> those were some times. <laughs> um, but I was given this incomplete vision of history from a lot of homeschool textbooks that when I looked back at them as an adult, I was like, there's no footnotes here. How do I know that what they're saying is actually coming from the sources that they say? And shouldn't I investigate the sources to make sure that what they're saying the sources say is what the sources say? Mm -hmm. As Christians, always, especially for me growing up, you know, Southern Baptist, book, chapter, and verse, show me. Show me. And mm-hmm. there, that can be, you know, there can be some biblicalism there that's a little bit unhealthy sometimes, right? Because like the Holy Spirit is not book, chapter, and verse. But when people are telling us things, um, or the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is book, chapter, and verse. The Trinity is not necessarily book, chapter, and verse, right? right. But when people are telling us things and saying that they are um, true about the Bible, we know. We need to check. Mm-hmm. We need to see what it actually says. We need to be Bereans. That same spirit exists when people are telling us things that happened in history. Um, mm-hmm you know, don't take my word. And I tell people not to take my word for things. Um, Mm. Everything that I say, I try to back up with a primary source, which would be just a source of someone who was an eyewitness during the period. Somebody who saw what happened, wrote about it as it happened, straight from the horse's mouth, if you will. And so I always try to give people access to, hey, I'm showing my work. Again, like maybe not even history, but maybe just math. We all had a math teacher who was like, show your work. I understand Mm -hmm that this is the correct answer, but how did you get there? Um, And I think that that's a good way to teach people how to take responsibility for their own education Mm -hmm. and to also really come face to face with their own biases. Um, Why don't I believe something? How can I believe something? What what are ways that I can believe something? Um, And to also come face to face with, I think what a lot of us experience, which is insecurity when we've been taught one way and we're learning things that go against what we were taught okay, well, how can we vet those things and make sure that they're true? Um, How can we know the truth? I think sometimes people talk about history as if it's this unknowable thing, you know, like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, good guys on both sides. And you just kind of like, that's, that's Mm -hmm. it. That's good. Um, But we can know, we can know what happened um, to, to a greater degree than what I think people express. Yeah. 
I think, and I kind of even identify with what you just said, there's insecurity when we come to things and realize maybe what we learned isn't the whole truth. I definitely have experienced that in my own life where I stumble across something and I'm like, what? This is not exactly what I thought it was. How can we cultivate hearts that are willing, minds that are willing to be open to the fact that maybe we don't know it all or we didn't learn it all quite right? How can you form that habit? Yeah. I mean, we can't have our identity in knowing it all um, and knowing Mm, it right. I think oftentimes, oftentimes our identity kind of gets wrapped up in it to the extent that we're not willing to examine and we're not willing to ask hard questions. Because if we do, then who are we? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like if America is not the country that I always thought that it was, then who am I? Who is God? Um, And I think that that puts a lot of, I think it puts into perspective where we put our identity, where we put our security. Um, Is it in our patriotism or is it in Jesus? And Or is it in our ethnic identity or is it in Jesus? And I think if it is in Jesus, then, you know, we need to be able to surrender the idols that we built of mm-hmm. what our what our past is and what our collective story is. Yeah, that is so good. It comes back to identity, which you're going to be talking about more over the next month. But mm-hmm. um, that's really that's really good. Okay. On all things, I do like to talk about current events. So let's talk about a current event that recently just happened. Um, You know, the state of Florida, it's been in the headlines. They just rejected a proposed advanced placement course um, that focuses on African-American studies. So this course has already been developed. It's been piloted in about 60 different schools. And the state of Florida looked at it and they said, no, we're actually not going to offer this in our state. And um, Governor DeSantis provided some reasons. His office said, um, you know, this is according to an article I read on CNN, but his office was concerned about the um, curriculum, including topics like the movement for Black lives, Black feminism and reparations, and the inclusion of certain Black authors and historians whose writings touch on critical race theory and Black communism. All right, so those were those reasons. Help us think about this headline. Obviously, we're only getting a tip of the iceberg because headlines are always inflammatory and clickbaity. Um, why does this curriculum exist? Why do you, did the state of Florida reject it? You know, help us think through this this news item. Yeah. So I ended up reading the letter from, I don't, uh, I need to look and see who it was because he put it on Twitter. Um, and I think I, I have his name on Twitter, but I don't know who Manny Diaz uh, mm-hmm. Jr. Um, but he put up kind of this document that was like concerns found within um, the uh, college board submitted AP African-American studies course. And so I read through the concerns and um The thing of it is, is that when you talk about an AP course, you're talking about something that is going to allow a high school student to, uh, what are are the best words I can use? Not opt out, but to like, to get credit for a college course that they then don't have to take. So Mm. it's got to be a a college level, you know, a college level course that that is taking place in um, high school. You don't have to take it. Um, but it is offered and it's something that you could do in order to get placed at a different level in college. Um, and so when we're talking about things like black feminism, communism, even um, there were, I think one of the black queer studies, um, the black lives, black lives matter movement, all of these things exist, mm. right? All of these, all of these things are realms of study. Um, Angela Davis is a real person. <laughs> 
who is a real communist. Um, you know, Bell Hooks is a real person, you know? And so I think it, it runs into this weird, um, this weird sense of erasure, right? Because we don't want our students to study things that are real. So I read the Communist Manifesto in high school um, and did not become a communist. <laughs> right. I read Mein Kampf in high school, yeah. um, did not empathize with the Nazi party. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, and that's like the far, far examples, right, of reading radical literature. Um, why did I read the Communist Manifesto? Well, because it was a really impactful piece of literature that has shaped nations um, and has shaped ideology. Why did I read Mein Kampf? Because it's a really impactful piece of literature that launched Germany into this war. Why did I read, you know, Darwin's Order of the Species? Same reason. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that understanding that these movements and these people are important elements of a certain phase and a certain um, dimension of Black history kind of gives us a different approach to it. Whereas it's not, you know, this is not a sermon that's being preached on Sunday morning, it's a class where ideas are being discussed. Um, and certainly, you know, different teachers might take different approaches. They might let their own biases slip through. Um, yeah. But that's any teacher in any class. And we have to trust our students to be able to mm-hmm. take things, digest them and make their own decisions and come to their own conclusions. Um, and I can yeah. tell you, after 10 years of teaching, a lot of them teaching high school students, a lot of them teaching advanced high school students, they did not take anything I said as Bible just because I was a teacher and I was saying it. <laughs> right. That's like, a really good point. <laughs> they yeah. really didn't. And I, as much pressure as I could have put on them in the classroom, and I tried to. I remember one time I was teaching my kids. I'm a black teacher in a classroom full of white kids, and I'm teaching them about Japanese internment camps. And Jen, they did not care. Mm. I tried. I tried my best. Mm. I, I showed them footage. I showed them you know, eyewitness accounts, I showed them. Some of them were like, oh, this is awful. But the vast majority of them did not care. We were at war. I, you know, and it's just a perfect example of like, just because I'm a teacher and I have, I have a moral objection to this thing that I am teaching and I am trying to show my kids the moral objection that I have to these things. And these kids are, I'm just with them for a few hours every week. They're at home Mm -hmm. getting their worldview shaped by their parents. And so when they come to me, I don't have enough power to shape what's happening for them at home. All I can do is introduce them to perspectives. All I can do is introduce them to the world around them. It's their decision ultimately. Um, In a case where I wish things would have gone my way, I wish that I would have been able to manipulate them into understanding the dehumanization of Japanese internment camps. Couldn't. Yeah. And in the same way, I think we give teachers too much power. I wish I had the amount of power that they think I have. I could get my kids to leave their cell phones in their backpacks. Seriously. I mean, this is an interesting conversation happening nationally that we can't really get into. It would be another episode, but just censorship, you know, I mean, we're, we're Mm -hmm. all about censorship right now. Like who shouldn't be in, in, and this could be considered a form of censorship. So, you know, what voices are we letting in? What voices are we keeping out? Um, Yeah. It's an interesting conversation, but you make a great point about teachers and students. So yeah. Thanks for speaking into that. Um, as a lover of history and a teacher of history, you wrote a book called Carved in Ebony, Lessons from the Black Women Who Shape Us. First of all, I would love to know how you did that research. I remember reading that you had a research assistant, I believe. Like I did. You dove into primary sources, right? So yes. how did you do that research? And then maybe just share a little slice with us of one of your favorite women in the book and something from that chapter. 
Yeah. So I have been um, a research assistant since I was 16 years old. I started as a research assistant when I graduated um, high school. I started as a research assistant for my dad, who has completely different beliefs and understanding of understandings of history than I do. So I have researched for people who are writing for the far right. I have researched mm-hmm. for people who were writing for the center. And I have done research trying to investigate, you know, far left. So I've researched the gamut, right? And so it was really interesting for me um, to actually have a research assistant after being a research assistant. I only had her for a month. So I was like, oh, I need to, you know, pour all pour all of this into her, get her to, you know, help me. And um, it was because I'm not, because I am not connected to a, an institution I am what's called an independent researcher, um, especially when I'm, you know, working for myself. Um, I just had to dig. I spent so much time digging and trying to understand and trying to mine sources. I bought so many books. I ran into so many walls. I cried a lot of tears, sometimes in frustration over not being able to get the information that I wanted to get, sometimes in joy because a rare book would just pop out of nowhere and I was able to get it for like $10 when it's worth like $800. Um, I have a first edition copy of Amanda Berry Smith's autobiography from the 1860s. I paid $30 for this first edition copy. I just like, so there's just a lot of like little things like that where I was just like hunting and trying to get things and get my hands on things. And um, goodness, it's so hard to pick a favorite. I I go back and forth, but I think the one that I normally pick, um, because I'm still upset, I wanted to write an entire book about her. And last year, a historian wrote an entire book about her and her family. And I was like, gutted because I was like, (laughs) it's supposed to be me. Um, But Charlotte Fortin Grimke came from this incredible abolitionist family in Philadelphia um, and ended up growing up and becoming a teacher um, at the in the Sea Islands. So it was something called the Port Royal Experiment, where um, these formerly enslaved, newly minted Americans um, are in the Sea Islands, and um, the experiment is trying to prove that if you allow Black people to work and be gainfully employed, they will work and stay gainfully employed which, of course. Um, And so Charlotte was there as a teacher, teaching them how to read and um, teaching them, you know, just kind of like really, really basic things. But also she was there as a folklorist. So she's taking their songs and she's taking their language because this is the Gullah people off of the coast of South Carolina. So she's really um, doing the work of a folklorist and and recording their history and recording their customs. just a really cool, really cool woman. Uh, grew up, I would say, like moderately privileged. Went to the Sea Islands and learned just how privileged that she was as a black free woman. Um, she ended up getting married to Francis Grimke, who's thirteen years her junior. So get it, girl. He was a pastor <laughs> in D.C. Um, and he's a pastor of Fifteenth Street Presbyterian Church. And just, I mean, Francis Grimke is a giant of a man, and. Mm-hmm. Um, for him to land a catch like Charlotte just shows you the kind of person that he was. And so following the trajectory of her life, you just get into all kinds of cool aspects of American history. Her father married a woman who was um, super wealthy because, so her mother died when she was younger. Her mother, her mother was enslaved. Her father wasn't. Then after her mother dies, her father marries this wealthy black woman who is wealthy because her family owns slaves 
but he's married to her, but like he's an abolitionist. It's, it's just, there's just all of this, like when you get into her life and you touch on every aspect of her life, you know, you go all the way from um, antebellum, you know, America up to, I think she died right before the Spanish flu. And um, so you just, I mean, you get into all of these really cool aspects when you just follow, follow her life. I love Charlotte. So I think, fascinating. I think she's my favorite for sure. Yeah. Well, I think Carved in Ebony would be a great read for those listeners who are thinking about something they want to read during Black History Month. Um, I love that you focused on Black women in particular. Um, and I know that was hard work. So thank you for mining the depths so that we could all be served on a platter. These fascinating stories, these gifts of God, these women who indeed shape us. Um, I just want to have a couple more questions. I know you're on a time crunch. So Tell us this, you know, you focus on these black women who shape us. I am obviously clearly a white podcaster, a white female. Most of my listeners, I think, are probably white females. What is unique about being a black woman, Jasmine, in the 21st century? Unique challenges. Can you give us that perspective? I know it's something we Mm. hear about a little bit. Maybe most of us are kind Mm -hmm. of on the margins of that conversation. Can you enlighten us a little bit on, on that topic? When you think about femininity and the way that our ideals of femininity were shaped. Um, The period in history where a lot of that shaping took place in America was during the Victorian era, right? This, these, these ideals of men going off, women staying home, these ideas of competition, these ideas of marketplace, um, all of those were being shaped during the Victorian era. Um, What was also being shaped during the Victorian era was the culture of enslavement. So the Victorian era in England and its corresponding era in America, um, both correspond with slavery and emancipation. And so when you think about the women with the smelling salts and the high collars and the, you know, modesty and all these things, that's happening at the exact same time that Black women are being dehumanized routinely um, by the institution of chattel slavery. And so a lot of the things that Black women experience kind of just like our ideas of femininity go back to that time um, a lot of the things that Black women have to grapple with when it comes to being seen as feminine, being seen as women, um, also goes back to that time. And so that's mm-hmm. like the the most basic way, you know, that I can put it is that a lot of the assumptions about Black women um, being stronger or having more sexual prowess or, you know, being more, being you know, the mammy figure, all these things, um, Mm -hmm. they find their genesis really in the legacy of, of slavery. And the more that we Mm -hmm. understand that legacy, I think the more that we're able to understand the unique struggles of black women. Yeah. And you talk about a lot on Instagram, which I think is so helpful, just the different maternal experiences that pregnant black women go through and delivery Mm -hmm. and mortality through that. And and it's so eye-opening. And the fact that, you know, it's true, we have been shaped by the last couple hundred years of history, the last two, three, four, five hundred 500 years of history. And we'd be foolish to think that our impressions of one another and various people groups are not shaped by that, as you say, going back to the Victorian era. So I just want to encourage listeners to tune into your Instagram account so they can learn some of these things, get bite sizes every day as they follow you. Um, So yeah, I will have plenty of links and show notes so people can find you on social media and can find your books as well. Close us out with just one final thought, Jasmine. Um, As a follower of Jesus, a woman created in his image, as are all of the listeners, um, can you just leave us with a hopeful note or a theological perspective um, why we should lean into as children of God, as followers of our Savior, 
why should we lean into this? Why should we go? Why should we dive in on Black History Month? Well, the beauty of it is that so many of the people that we're learning about during Black History Month, particularly the ones that I like to teach about, are believers. And so it's not just Black history. It's it's our history as believers. It's our history of watching God work in the lives of the oppressed and bring them victory in both ways, both big and small. And so it's just a beautiful picture of our heritage as Christians. I think a lot of times um, Black Americans are told that American heritage white American heritage is our heritage too. Like we could just claim too, but I don't know that it goes the other way as often Mm -hmm. as it should. Um, That heritage says something about the God that we serve and um, it says something about the way that he loves us too. Yeah. So good. Thank you, Jasmine. Thanks for sharing your wisdom, all the history that you have to offer us. We're so grateful for you. And thanks everybody for tuning into all things. Thanks so much for taking time to listen to All Things with me, Jen Oshman, where we look at current events and cultural trends through a Christian lens. All Things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now.